Welcome to the Seminole Wars. In this podcast, we explore how the Seminole Wars came to be, how they were fought, and how they still resonate some two centuries later. I am your host, Patrick Swan, and our show is a production of the Seminole Wars Foundation, found online at www.seminolewars.us. We are recording today from the homestead of the Foundation in Bushnell, Florida. Thank you for listening. Hello and welcome. When we visit a state or federal park in Florida on the anniversary of some great battle, we often encounter people who look like they've somehow just stepped out of a history book. We have a name for them. We call them living historians, reenactors, interpreters, heritage hobbyists, sham battlers, authenticity fanatics, and historical enthusiasts. Year-round, we meet them on weekends giving public presentations and period demonstrations at federal and Florida state and county parks and on Indian reservations. Theirs is a hobby, true, but it is a hobby they take most seriously, and they engage in it with the utmost professionalism and often at great monetary cost. One of the most renowned and respected among them in Florida is Jesse Marshall. An autodidact of both the Seminole and Civil Wars, Jesse has literally walked the walk as well as talked the talk about soldier life in those historical eras. Jesse has podcasted with us previously about reenacting. That focus was on the two marches that he made to go to reenactments. In this episode, Jesse focuses on what it takes to be a reenactor. Jesse will also discuss how we got started with military historical reenactment in America. He joins us to discuss the do's and don'ts of historical reenactment, its origins and evolution in America from the 1950s forward, its importance in helping people connect with a past that can appear a most foreign country to the America of today, and whether what he does is heritage, hobby, or a hobbling of history. Jesse Marshall, welcome to the Seminole Wars. Glad to join you. If you're a spectator going to one of these military battle reenactments, what are you getting? What can you expect? What are they attempting to show to you? And what does it show historical in the battle reenactment? Well, they're excellent demonstrations of the tactical manuals of the time. Even the largest Civil War events that I've been to in the 90s were memorable in my mind for large masses of fellows engaging in battalion drill uh, and maneuver over rough ground and keeping formation or not, or attempting to. Spectators that were watching that could see a lot of that too. They could see without even pressing it. They could see a line trying to maneuver over a hill. Notice the line can't really stay straight and while they're trying. Well, there's no bullets flying and knocking men down, but they're still struggling. The reenactors are putting an enormous effort in. That what I think may not be understood. I've read professional historians criticizing reenactors that what they're doing isn't really as historical as they think. And maybe it is or maybe it isn't. I think some of the criticisms are a little overwrought because, again, the reenactor in what he does doesn't even need to talk to the public. So, you see, he doesn't necessarily even need to communicate any larger ideas about what he's doing. That's what the professor does at a college, you see. You pay him, you sit in the chair, and he'll tell you what you want to know about this or that. The average reenactor at an event doesn't talk to the public. He's part of the process. He's not really a historian in that sense that he's communicating to the public our larger ideas. 
There's a criticism of civil war reenacting that doesn't involve the larger social issues of the war and the issue of slavery. Well, that is correct. Civil war reenacting isn't about those issues. It's a military hobby in the sense that if the civil war battlefields weren't around, then if there's a revolutionary war battlefield near you, that's where you'll do the reenactment. I go to Seminole War events because most of the battlefields in Florida are Seminole War battlefields. I don't travel to Virginia to do civil war events, although I have done so but I don't do that anymore. The reenactor is he's partly engaged in a patriotic historical display, sort of pageant of America. It's folklore-ish. I only say that in the sense that many of the most memorable experiences I've had at events were sitting around campfires with some really interesting people, people I never would have met or had a discussion with, and mostly about historical subjects or their relation to historical sites or incidents, family members, what have you. Meeting this wide spectrum of people has been a kind of interesting thing about the hobby, as they call it. How has the hobby changed, even from as close a period of time as the 1980s? There aren't as many events as there used to be. In the 1980s, historical reenacting became very popular, particularly Civil War reenacting, and it entered the pop culture. In 1986, there was an enormous series of reenactments held at near battlefield parks, Manassas, Gettysburg, 1988, concluding in Appomattox in the 1991. And the scale of those events was enormous, dwarfed the centennial reenactments significantly. My understanding is Gettysburg in 1963 for the centennial had maybe a few hundred reenactor participants, but there were 10,000 or more at the Gettysburg event in 1988, uh, so I'm told. I have friends that attended the 1988 Gettysburg event some of whom also attended the 2013 150th anniversary Gettysburg, and they felt the 1988 event was much larger and better organized, but that's an aside. Some of this is attributable to the advancing age of the original reenactors, as well as the inability to attract enough younger people to get into the hobby? There's been criticisms that the reenactors are too old. Well, that's probably true. Most of the reenactors were older when I started in 1992, and a lot of those fellows have retired from the hobby, and many of the fellows in the hobby are older. I will say this. I think there seems to be less younger people getting into the hobby. I'm not really surprised, because when I got into it, if you wanted to have a period rush of seeing the elephant, to use the old 19th century term, in a historical way, you had to go to a reenactment and partake in it. You either watched it or you got in the middle of it. As, as you saw fit, today you can purchase a, a video game that can place you right in the middle of the Battle of Waterloo or the fighting in the Pacific on an island where your avatar in the game is handling historical weapons in an authentic way. And you can do it while sitting at your desk and in the air conditioning and completely comfortable. And cheaper? Absolutely. So the result is perhaps the hobby has lost that generation, but there's still young people in the hobby. Some people are sad about the state of it. I don't see any reason to be, because I've read newspaper stuff going back to the 50s about reenactments. And for a long time, Civil War reenacting was not very small. It was a fringy hobby. It may go back to being a fringy hobby, but it's not going to go away. When did the hobby really start in modern times? In the 50s and 60s in St. Petersburg, Florida, General Don Ramsey started the Commemorative Confederate Army. It's one of the first major Confederate reenacting groups. And it wasn't even really a reenacting group, but he wore a uniform and that enthused people. And sent him a couple dollars and he sent you a certificate that you're an official colonel in the Commemorative Confederate Army of Peniel. And there were reenactors around already. Not many, but 
by the centennial, they had hundreds of them come to do some events. And Ramsey was a Confederate commander at Gettysburg, I understand, in 1963. Ramsey's view was that what he was doing, because there was no reenacting in the public mind. And when the St. Petersburg Times talked to him, like, well, what are you doing? And it has him and a few young men wearing Confederate costumes with some swords and a mock cannon. It says, well, we're commemorating the Confederate Army. And he lays it out as one of the original reenactors in the pop culture era. He says it. We're a group that's commemorating the valor and service of the Confederate soldier. That's it. They weren't reenacting to reenact larger or specific issues of the war. They were largely an adjunct to those silent monuments in front of so many courthouses in the South. General Ramsey and his men would come out and do a living history demonstration, Civil War drill or tactics, and, and that grew. And the centennial reenactments brought in thousands of spectators and the public interested in historical pageantry. It just grew from there, especially in the 1980s with television, movies, and when Hollywood began calling on reenactors as extras to produce large-scale films like Glory and Gettysburg by the 90s, that was a pretty big thing. There was a, a big run from around 1980 through the mid-90s where even some Florida reenactors just constantly doing Hollywood productions or TV movies, Civil War programming, sometimes paid, evidently sometimes not. You are a student of the Seminole Wars. However, your first interest in military history was in the Civil War. How did that come about, and how did that lead you to exposure to military history reenactments? I just kind of found the Civil War era fascinating as a youth from visiting battlefields where my grandpa served. We had television programs like North and South and Blue and the Gray. I read a vast amount of history and much of it military history. And it puzzled me that Americans had fought a war against each other. And because it's so puzzling, it's also fascinating. Reenacting had become accessible because there were events in Florida. So even as a kid, I remember enjoyed watching the Brooksville Raid in the 80s and some other events. My folks were interested in reenacting too, mainly because of the camping. We used to like to camp, and we found out that if you reenact, you can camp relatively inexpensively. Although the camping is period, but many reenactments have modern camping as well. And my folks like to camp, so that was an attraction to them. They knew that I liked historical subjects, and they thought it would be nice if they could actually find people that I could talk to about historical subjects. When did you first start reenacting? 1991, joined a reenacting club, figured out their rules, and, and by 1992 we were outfitting and gathering equipage. By the end of the year, we're participating, mainly doing Confederate, Florida volunteers uh, as an impression at a lusty and other similar Florida events. Now, I had already read about the Seminole War. I uh, had read Frank Lauer's Massacre. I had read Fearless and Free by Mr. Walton and Meltzer's Hunted Like a Wolf. And I was just then getting into Sprague's Home from 1848. a fantastic book. I still highly recommend it. And I had no idea there was Seminole War reenacting for a couple of years. And I just happened to mention the Seminole Wars. And one of my reenacting friends says, yeah, we do Seminole War too. And I says, what are you talking about? And he says, yeah, we go to the Dade Battlefield every year in the off-season, and we reenact Dade's Massacre. And I already read Massacre. I was just completely confounded. I had no idea there was 
reenactment of that event, uh, I said, I don't know that I even thought it, but it was obvious. I said, I got to get in on that. That's just fascinating. Through Hook and Crook, I outfitted for the Dade Massacre and took in it for the first time in January of 1993. And I've been going back ever since. And I'm one of the new guys, by the way. Many of the participants who have been there since the 80s are still going. I have 27 years in, but I'm still a new guy. We need new, new guys, and there are new, new guys every year. What most intrigued you about this to get you really into it? And how did you avoid the temptation to time travel? So the thing that intrigued me about reenacting is the mode of trying to convert history into a sort of manifestation. Like many people that get into reenacting as a hobby, it's sort of undisciplined. And if you're not careful, you can spiral out of control. You start to time travel. What I mean by that is you join a club and let's say you do Roman infantry and then next thing you know, you want to do Greek hoplite. And next thing you know, you're it's just it's spiraling out of control. Your bank account is shrinking and your closets are getting full of all this historical replica equipage. Much of it you may not even have an opportunity to use. Thankfully, when I started doing Seminole War programming, many of the fellows that engaged in it, had a very disciplined view of living history, and studying the subject, you know, were able to explain to me the purposes and functions of what we're doing at the Dade Battlefield in a way that was not either necessary or capable of being explained at most larger reenactments. And that is largely encompassed in the 1980s book, Time Machines, The World of Living History by Jay Anderson. There are other books about the theory of living history. I've tried to read some of them, and they're terribly, terribly esoteric in that sort of social science kind of way. I highly recommend Time Machines, even today. What does Jay Anderson teach us about the limitations of living history? Anderson posits in a very concise way that living history is not capable of informing the public of advanced historical concepts. He's not saying it necessarily because he thinks that, but he gives examples from living history sites like Plymouth Plantation and Louisburg Fortress in Canada and Williamsburg, where the individual interpreter's interaction with a public person may average only seconds. Your interaction may average 10 minutes at most. And so what are you going to use that time to interpret? Why are they even interested in what you're doing? Well, they're interested usually because you're wearing funny clothes that they perceive to be historical. Uh, and maybe you're doing something that interests them, historical skill. How do you take advantage of that interest? And if you're trying to do a bait and switch by drawing the public in, and then you want to lay on them some heavy history, it may repel them. But if you just engage in the process for its own sake, the result will likely be that it might intrigue the person enough to investigate the history that you were manifesting. In other words, a success would be if someone comes to the massacre reenactment, success could be measured in how many people either purchase or rent from a library a copy of one of Mr. Laumer's books to read more about the battlefield or the battle or the Seminole Wars generally or even go online and read about it. So Anderson's view is that reenacting the way it functions best is to excite interest, not to provide specific information. You know, many people get into reenacting and they get out of it after they have their fun. I'll be honest, I think that book is probably what's kept me in it for almost 30 years because reenactors 
recognize they can't recreate the past. And so the term reenactor is a interesting one. If you're operating a historical musket in a demonstration, if it's just a single reenactor at Dade's Battlefield, and he's interpreting to a group the operations and functions of a flintlock musket, it always struck me that he's reenacting because he's reenacting the drill and handling of that particular weapon. I'm a retired soldier, and when I see the Dade battle, I still don't feel like I have a dog in the fight. This is a historical commemorative event, and I'm not necessarily rooting for the reenactors who are on the regular army side. However, there are actual Seminoles who participate, and this is personal, but I don't reckon that you've noticed any personal animosity during the reenactments uh, from the Seminole as they battle the regulars. I've been the recipient of a great deal of courtesy from the Seminoles. Now, I've personally never partake in the Seminole Tribe's own programming, like the Kissimmee Slough Shootout event they held in the past. I know many of the reenactors have gone down for that. I mainly do the state park events. As a reenactor, going to Okeechobee Battlefield, Seminoles have hosted cookouts for us and things of that nature. But I have had members of the general public upset at the idea of even reenacting the Seminole Wars, but everyone's opinion is valid on, on that score. They don't like it. They can either attempt to stop it or they can not pay for a ticket or they don't watch it on YouTube. But I did have on one occasion at a small event I was at years ago, a gentleman who was a, a member of a tribe up north who was a vendor was at one of the smaller Seminole War events and we were sitting in camp and the gentleman came around. He introduced himself and mentioned that he was a member of a northern tribe. He had evidently never been to a Indian War battle reenactment before. He'd been to powwows, he's the craft vendor, and he was asking us why we were reenacting a battle. We told him that it was a hobby, essentially. That being said, the gentleman I was talking about, we sort of answered to the best of our ability in camp what we were doing, and he didn't find the answer satisfactory. Instead of continuing to explain our point of view, I recollect I asked him, well, what is your point of view? And he said that where he was from, I believe the Dakotas, that there's still an antagonism between the Indians and the white farmers up there. He just found it odd that we were reenacting that. But where he's from, he could be thrown out of a certain bar for being a tribe member. White people could be thrown out of certain bars. I think that's something he alluded to. Actually, I appreciate that immensely because reenactors do have the habit of necessity. If you participate in enough reenactments, you begin to think of the historical stuff you're interpreting is just fodder for your hobby. You can be dealing with people's heritage. When speaking about heritage, reenactors of battles for any era are honoring a heritage of valor for both sides in a given engagement, rather than a more comprehensive history of what happened. There's a simple explanation for this. The paying public demands it. Don Ramsey started the Confederate reenacting in Florida in the late 50s. He was a northern man, a retiree, and I think that was one of his points, was we were going to reenact the valor of the Confederate soldiers. Now, there were plenty of Confederate soldiers that were less than valorous in combat, or at least on some occasions, and uh, John Anopi of the Virginia Cavalry has a whole chapter about cowards in his memoir of the war, which is a fascinating read. But General Ramsey's point was, well, we're not going to reenact that because public isn't interested in that. They're more interested in the guys that actually stood on the battle line and got shot than they are about the ones that didn't. So we will interpret the bravery. And that's one reason why you have Civil War reenactments, the penultimate 
reenactment that everyone really wants to get in on is Pickett's Charge at Gettysburg. In, in a greater or lesser extent, most Civil War events, small or large, are like Gettysburg events in that sense. The penultimate play of valor between the two armies. Look at how many thousands of spectators have gone to the Gettysburg reenactments over the last 25 years or more, 30. In the East Coast, around Virginia and the Capitol, reenactments have been going on a lot. The public, even if they're not interested in history per se, they can at least pay a couple dollars and sit in a lawn chair and watch the battle. Give them the most rudimentary view of historical things, insignias and flags. And even if they know very little about American history, they probably remember seeing the Confederate battle flag at a reenactment. And then they see it on the news that there's an association. This emphasis on valor can at times create a distorted picture of how the battle, any battle, may have played out. When I started doing Civil War reenacting, I was puzzled over that whole conundrum because whenever our units would back off the field from a battle reenactment, we would have the rear ranker turn around and grab the straps of the man in the front and would guide them back so that the front ranker did not turn his back on the enemy. I had read enough memoirs of, let's say, Watkins Company H and other memoirs of the war to recognize that when attack faltered, the men didn't necessarily wait to turn around and march backwards. They ran out of the way, scatter, and then reorganize if they could. So I found it really puzzling as a youth why we would do that. And you know, I asked about it. And said, well, we don't want to turn our back on the enemy. And I thought, well, we're reenacting, aren't we? Uh, they turn their back on the enemy all the time when they're splitting and reorganizing. Again, at that time, I didn't quite understand that reenacting is sort of limited in the way, like General Ramsey said, we interpret the bravery of the Civil War soldier. We don't interpret his diseases. We don't interpret his gambling habits. All the kind of things that could be interpreted as a pop culture hobby, battle reenactments of the Civil War reenact the valor of the Civil War soldier. So it's commemorative, patriotic. It's not really history in the way of seeing the past. It's a great means of developing a certain enthusiasm. That being said, there are reenactors that aren't constrained by that. There are groups of reenactors who will do programming at battlefield parks that don't go out of their way to lionize the historical soldier to, to create of him something other than the man with a mortal body and a corrupted reason. The Civil War has been kept alive in the American pop culture through TV and movies and books and today on social media. How much do you assess this is attributable to reenactments? controversial as Confederate history has become in the news and politics recently. I don't know that it could have been used as a large public issue if it weren't for the large reenactment pop culture phenomenon of the last 30-some years. The Civil War becoming a pop culture issue is being used as a pop culture issue. Once the Civil War is no longer in pop culture, once the monuments are gone, the reenactments may fade out. Yeah, people are pretty passionate in the South about the Confederacy. If you were to ask people about the Seminole War, you wouldn't quite get passion. You've been to both, Civil War reenactments and Seminole War reenactments. Is there a difference in passion against the enemy in the Civil War reenactments versus the Seminole War reenactments? Well, that's an intriguing question, and I would be lying if I said I hadn't heard commentary, you know, uh, but I would have to say that reenacting in itself 
squelchy because you may take a guy that says, Sherman's Army burned my great-grandma's farm and the darn Yankees this, the darn Yankees that. But when you get him on a reenactment field, put him in the wool and you sweat him out doing my column in the line and, you know, even just an hour in the blazing sun and battalion column and forming firing line and firing 40, 50 rounds and then marching back to camp, you see it just sweats it all out of him there. So you don't really hear a lot of it. I never did. I have met some folks with Florida heritage going back 100 or more years, but that's rare. A lot of the Confederate reenactors in Florida and, and elsewhere are northerners. Most of the reenactors are not from Florida, so they don't have any particular kin or dog in the fight. They're historical enthusiasts. Could Seminole War battle reenactments survive a controversy as intense as what we've seen directed at anything associated with the Confederate side of the Civil War in recent months? We shipped all that controversy onto the Second Seminole War of 1835-42. The vast majority of the American public has never heard of the conflict. They've never been to one of the reenactments. And even among Florida citizenry, complaints would fall upon deaf ears. How important is it to stress in the reenactments or the sham battles, you're not actual Confederates, you're not actually Union soldiers, and with the Seminole Wars, you're not actual federal soldiers or militiamen, you are volunteers who are portraying such military. People have inquired of me about the Seminole reenactors versus the soldier reenactors outside of the historical interpretation we're doing. I just point out that we're all state park volunteers, which is what we are. I'd like to point out the same, that as a Civil War reenactment, whether it's Gettysburg or Lusty, or, you know, Lusty is a good example in that it's a state park. All of the reenactors at Lusty, whatever they're interpreting, they're not Confederates, they're not Union soldiers, they're park volunteers interpreting historical incidents of that time frame. Reenacting is a kind of heritage history. Its essence is not trying to recreate the battle second by second, minute by minute. It's more of an interpretation of the battle, recognizing that the public comes to see a spectacle, not a battle's boring or unvalorous parts. What a reenactor does is an interpretation of the past. You can read Hardy's tactics from the Civil War, and you can read it carefully to do the manual of arms with your weapon. Well, then you can watch old footage of Civil War veterans in a parade in the 1920s and watch how they're doing the manual of arms, and it may be very different than how you interpret it by reading the manual. There's always room to learn more as more historical sources come to light. What problems may this create for the reenactor's presentation? Civil War reenacting includes what they call a progressive end of the hobby that's constantly advancing their actual material culture interpretation, among other things, as new research comes up. In the late 1960s, Civil War reenacting seemed to have went a little bit dormant during the political struggles of that time frame. The reenactors were still around. You just didn't see them as much as you did during the centennial of the early 1960s. And then continued what they were doing, and then when it became popular again in the mid-80s, surprise! The reenactors had improved their Costuming and equipment were better. The hobby was ready to fill up with recruits. I really do appreciate the huge strides in material culture authenticity that have been made in the last 25 years, particularly in the Civil War hobby. On the other hand, some of these advances in Civil War gear authenticity seem to have passed by more traditional groups that are happy to do it just as they've always done it. What I've noticed is the advance in authenticity has done more to widen the gap 
in authenticity. I went to Brooksville last year, and there's guys who are equipped with uniforms that I could almost identify the original that it's based on from some of the collector's book. Basically, a costume pretty much just like they would have been in 1960s without any advance in so-called authenticity. The Confederate Army is interesting because no two soldiers were really dressed alike. And so that's one of the amusing things about Confederate Army reenacting is how to interpret the Confederate soldier as a conundrum. Because there are some uniforms that exist in museums, like a pair of pants and a hat and a coat. But there's no complete outfit, as in no complete soldier's equipage with his clothing representing a specific period of time like a microcosm. Consequences are that a Confederate reenactor, when he completes his equipage, is engaging in an enormous amount of speculation. Even if his garments are made with replica fabric, which you can get, and even if it's hand-sewn, and even if it's made from a pattern derived from an original garment, and it mirrors that original garment in every way, hat, coat, shirt, pants, drawers, shoes, sock, knapsack, ammo box, everything. The assembly of all that specific replica equipment for that impression you're doing is still speculative because the Confederate government never standardized a lot of its equipage. It just purchased stuff from whoever would make it. And also, when they did start manufacturing uniforms, they never really standardized them beyond saying gray jackets and pants. The jackets could be different colors, and the patterns were different, and the facings and materials and buttons all were different. And Federals generally would say there's no two dressed alike as a result. And their equipment was probably rather motley as well. Well, because you don't have really good photographs of Confederate soldiers in full equipment, as they would have been in the field, there's only a couple images that show them outfitted as such. The Confederate reenactor has to speculate a great deal about how he's equipping. Well, I'm going to wear this jacket, and uh, they had knapsacks, so I'm going to choose this replica of this one. Well, you don't know. There's no original knapsacks from the 7th Florida Regiment existing today. No photographs or really descriptions. There is some very vague archaeological evidence, but really, when you wear a knapsack interpreting the 7th Florida, you're speculating. When one looks at Seminole War reenactors, they look pretty uniform to me. It doesn't seem like a motley collection of hobbyists. Some view it as such. We know roughly what the equipment the Army provided was, but quite frankly, a lot of the equipment the Army provided, there are no examples in museums of. We don't have photography. There's a certain amount of speculation of the knapsack, soldier's backpack, about it. And the way we interpret it, we use essentially a Confederate knapsack that appears to have been manufactured in a manner similar to that used by the pre-war Army. You know, obviously, the regular troops under Dade were probably younger men, relatively fit. Most of them were undersized 40 chest because most of the garments at that time were 36 chest and below. And so the reenactors have gotten older and their suits have gotten bigger. But in a way, we even may overemphasize uniformity among our regular reenactors at Seminole events because some of the handful of descriptions of regular troops in Florida seem to suggest the officers allowed the men to dress as they pleased in the field. Yeah, but that's not what I want to see. Well, therein we come back to what I was pointing out, that battle reenactments have a very powerful function of pageantry. The 4th of July in Washington, you have military parades, the old guard and their third infantrymen in their 1780 period uniforms is impressive. And they are the penultimate, by the way, the old guard platoon that's outfitted as Continental Soldiers is very impressive. Reenactor hobbyists are really not doing anything differently. It's just that they're limited. They don't have the resources that the 3rd Infantry has. The individual reenactor's budget is involved. The rules of his club that he joins, the rules, the events that he goes to, all combine to determine how you're outfitted. 
But yes, for Seminole War, there have been some reenactors that have gone to enormous lengths, improved their authenticity to great levels, and there are others who've been wearing the same homemade jacket for 25 years. Some people want hand-sewn buttonholes, some people don't really care. There is a difference in that. That doesn't affect the overall effect of the program when you see the soldiers marching in a column through the woods before they're ambushed, and then they sort of disappear into the trees and the gun smoke. Jesse, what you describe is one thing, but some amateurs who are wearing blue jeans or modern-day wristwatches make not only themselves, but everyone alongside them look bad because they stand out as walking anachronisms. Well, you can kind of tell. There's some things that are obvious. I didn't go to the Gettysburg event last year, which I think was one of the last ones, so I don't think they held one this year. But they would have a Gettysburg event annually. I only went to one quite a while back. But I was reading online some spectator comments on the Internet when it was announced they weren't going to do another one this year because of low turnout last. Some of the comments on the internet pointed out that they were disappointed because many of the reenactors were wearing blue jeans or modern shoes and I think one of them was confused because Sutler Row was filled with authentic equipment or more or less authentic and yet many of the reenactors are wearing modern clothing eyeglasses and yet right across camp is authentic period items for sale. Again, it has to do with the individual group that the reenactor joins and what the rules of the event venue are. If the event venue is very serious about authenticity guidelines and forcing them, then they run the risk of limiting their participation. And if you limit the participation, you have the problem of limiting the spectacle, especially when you're trying to do a spectacle like Gettysburg. Yeah, but you can ruin the spectacle by having people in modern clothes in the interpretation. Yeah, yeah, that, that's the great struggle in reenacting as a hobby. Blue jeans and vaguely modified sneakers. In Europe, that might be an acceptable attire for some programs. The interpreters of historical weapons or cannon or farm implements often are just dressed in their work clothes. They're not wearing period costume necessarily. If you go to American historical sites, you'll often see someone in the interpreter in period <coughs> costume like a reenactor. So they seem to be very similar in what they're doing. And it would be great if all reenactors were living historians in that sense. But they're not. They're mostly hobbyists that are willing to sweat out the details, literally. As we wrap up, Jesse, I want to give you one more shot to talk about the importance of living history interpretation. Living history and reenacting has demonstrated that it has an importance in the sense that it can inspire the public to an interest or even an awareness of historical incidents. The question can be valid. Do you want the public to know about these incidents? If, if you want them to forget about it, then it wouldn't be of advantage to have historical reenactments of certain things, or if it would be considered in bad taste. But I think military reenactment is not considered poorly in the eyes of most people because the military reenactors are interpreting the public actions of public men in the sense that soldier is serving his community and his government and essentially the public. And the activities that he performs in that service are not just his, but they belong to his country, paid by his country, buried by his country when possible, etc. So the reenactor who interprets that, you know, the public perceives it, I think, in that way. This is what the soldiers did, and that's how they marched, and that's what the shoes look like. And the reenactment, no matter how simplistic or accurate it is as a recreation of a historical incident, has the means of inspiring an interest in the youth to what advantage, who could say? My folks thought, well, maybe he could become a history professor or a teacher or something. So they wanted to encourage the idea that I could apply historical interest in some measure, other than just you know reading books over the summer 
breaks and whatnot. I can also say this, that as a hobby, to participate in for almost 30 years now, I've really gotten along with pretty much everyone I've ever met in the hobby, and I've been surprised at how little disorder, fusion, theft, or, or other problems have been related to the program. It's not a hobby for everyone, but it certainly is a hobby for the people that feel a compulsion to gay period camping and just really want to support particular venues like Battlefield Park Museum in that way. Jesse Marshall, thanks for joining us for the Seminole Wars. Yes, it's been a pleasure. If you enjoyed this show, please take a moment to like us on Facebook at Seminole Wars Foundation. Leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. Your reviews and comments help new listeners discover us and help us keep the show going. Visit our website at www.seminolewars.us for blogs, articles, news, books, events, membership information, and how to subscribe to this podcast. We'll be back soon with a new episode of the Seminole Wars Podcast. The Seminole Wars Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to preservation, education, and publication of Seminole Wars history throughout the state of Florida. This podcast is copyrighted. The Seminole Wars Foundation 2021. All rights reserved. Front bumper music, The Devil's Garden, Roastem, provided by kind permission of Rita Youngman. Back bumper music, Second Seminole Win, by Jed Merrim and Ricky Pittman, courtesy of Ricky Pittman. All rights reserved.